Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, The kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Throughout the book of Daniel, you will be invited to walk in a different direction, to think in a different way, to rebel against Babylon, to walk out of captivity, and to live a life of courage in Christ. In this second chapter of Daniel, we learn that of King Nebuchadnezzar's fantastic dream. The king, you'll remember, called a conference and insisted that the wise men of Babylon reveal the dream and its interpretation. And remember what we learned about that word interpretation. It meant to unravel or untie its meaning. When the so-called wise men were unable to reveal the dream and its meaning, Daniel and his friends were placed in peril in verses 1 through 13. And as the chapter unfolded, we saw Daniel's prayer to God to reveal the dream and its meaning. And then Daniel's praise to God for in fact revealing mysteries in verses 14 through 23. And then Daniel communicates 
the substance of the dream in verses 24 through 35. And now he is going to reveal the significance of the dream in verses 36 through 45. Daniel has honored God in the first chapter. And now God will honor Daniel in the second chapter. And again, tie the dots together. Separation from sin in the first chapter is going to lead to revelation from God in the second chapter. And then elevation from God at the end of the chapter. So there's lots of things that we learn. Daniel communicates the revelation. And we discover something. We discover there is a God in heaven. We understand that what looks like an impossible predicament, that even in those impossible predicaments, we can trust God Completely, We've already learned that there's great value in prayer and praise to God. We've learned that when God works, God is unwilling to share his glory. And we've learned the Lord both desires and demands credit for your life. For the gifts that he's given you. For the position that he's put you in. For, for the revelation that's been imparted to you. But now we're going to learn something else. That human kingdoms come and go. That the kingdoms of humanity have a predictable cycle. It will begin with domination. It will then be marked by either catastrophic or incremental deterioration, which is going to eventually lead to disintegration. The cycles of the kingdoms of humanity will come and go But the plan of God remains intact. It was always God's plan to send a Messiah. And the Messiah will come and does come. He lives that life. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven with a promise that he will return. And just like the 500 plus years that are going to unfold from this chapter forward to the coming of Jesus, there's also an unfolding that will take place at the end of time. As certain as the revelation was at the beginning, it is as certain at the end. So God has a plan. And God insists that human kingdoms will come to a close. And not just any close. The kingdom isn't going to come incrementally. It's going to come in the terms of an intervention. There's a stone that's going to come. It's a supernatural stone. It will crush the governments of men. The dream provides the biblical backbone of prophecy concerning the rise and fall of Gentile kingdoms. And the events are for the most part past, but there is a significant portion of the prophecy that remains unfulfilled. The kingdom of God will come 
Just as John Phillips puts it in his wonderful book, he writes, quote, not by evolution, the kingdom will come, quote, not by evolution, not by the gradual leavening of mankind by the gospel, but by divine intervention. It will be imposed sovereignly on the world by God. The returning Christ of God, the stone cut without hands, will crush all of his foes. He will raise up a kingdom that will embrace the whole world. The glorious millennial kingdom heralded by Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets, unquote. It's going to happen. And so we see the meaning, not only of the dream, but it begins with the meaning of the statue. Look at verse 36. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. The substance of the dream has already been revealed in verses 24 through 33. And note Daniel's very specific words in this verse. We will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Why does he use the plural pronoun? Is there a mouse in Daniel's pocket? Are the other children of Israel there with him? Is he making reference to the wise men, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and the magicians? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is no. The answer that, that we, I would give for his use of the plural pronoun is he must be speaking of the Lord God of heaven that this Lord God of heaven is speaking. He is the source of the revelation. He is the source of the interpretation. All Daniel is, is God's servant. Once again, even in this instance, Daniel will distance himself as being the supernatural source but rather will point the king and everyone listening to the king of heaven. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I believe. It, even my observation and interpretation doesn't matter all that much. What matters most is the revelation that's been given by God concerning what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. God is the source of the secrets. The revelation of the dream was a major accomplishment, but the interpretation of the dream is no small matter. Again, the meaning of the word interpretation is to untie or untangle the meaning of the dream. And so even when we use that expression in our common conversations with one another, as we open up the Bible and we see what the Bible says, and then we ask the question, what does it mean by what it says? And some people will say, well, that's just your interpretation. And I would point out that people's interpretations can be flawed. People's perspectives can be flawed. My point of view is my point of view, but I want to encourage you that God doesn't have a point of view. He only has points to view. God sees everything clearly even if we don't. 
And so the king sees a massive statue with a head of gold, a body of silver and bronze with legs and feet of iron and and clay. And in verse 37, he says, you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. It's interesting to me that in one sense, Daniel reveals that it isn't just simply the Babylonian empire that is the head of the gold. But in some sense, in some very real sense, the face of the statue is the face of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the face of a man. And I'm going to suggest to you that the reason why the statue has a f- the face of a man is because it represents mankind and mankind's commitment, if you will, to rule himself or herself. We live in a world where human beings are constantly yearning to be disconnected from the rule of God. And so as we look at this, I I want you to understand what the text is saying. The dominion extends over the children of men wherever they dwell. In this particular sentence, I'm going to suggest to you that Nebuchadnezzar was given power and authority to claim the whole earth, to conquer the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar in and of himself could have literally conquered the entire world. He would have been unstoppable. He would have become like the parable, what, what, what Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And he loses his soul. There are a few human beings in history who have seemed to attain to that measure and stature of power. God created human beings to have dominion over the animals. We know from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And it would appear that the dream and the metaphor of the head and the gold speak of this absolute monarchy. And we quickly learn that there's a success of kingdoms. And clearly there there are massive empires before Babylon. And people reading this invariably will ask the question, well, what about Egypt? And what about Assyria? And what about China? Um, What about all of these incredible kingdoms that have come and gone? Why is the focus of the passage on these particular empires? Why does the narrative begin here? And I'm going to suggest to you it begins here because these are the kingdoms that unfold in relationship to the people of Israel. It is unfolding in relationship to the people of Israel. What has happened? There are five prophets who prophesied during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and then the captivity of the children of Israel and then their return. It would appear that this massive disciplinary action by God to put the children of Israel under the yoke and subjugation of Gentile powers was in part punishment, but that God's plan to bring about the Messiah 
is inviolate. That means it must happen. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Judah and David isn't going to be undermined by the rebellion and the disobedience of Israel. Daniel is going to give an interpretation as revelation of the near future and the far future. So the vision in quick order describes four future kingdoms, Babylon, the Medo-Persians, Greece, and Rome. These same kingdoms are going to be talked about and expanded in chapter 7. Here in chapter 2, it's man's perspective as Nebuchadnezzar considers himself and the Gentile powers in chapter 7. It's going to be from God's perspective. From a human perspective, the human story of human civilization is a tribute to humanity. In chapter 7, from God's perspective, it's a series of raging animals. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a monster. And so the Lord God of heaven gives Nebuchadnezzar a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And it would appear that God authorizes a universal dominion that was never quite achieved. But when Nebuchadnezzar acts, he acts, I'm going to suggest to you, without impunity. He is invincible. I'm also going to suggest to you that when chapter 2 is taking place, Nebuchadnezzar is at the beginning of his reign. This isn't at the middle or at the end of his reign. Nebuchadnezzar has just come to power. His father has just died. Nebuchadnezzar is going to go on and he's going to defeat the Egyptians at Carchemish. He's going to literally sack the temple in Jerusalem. He is going to consolidate power throughout the Tigris and Euphrates Valley. So much could be said about Babylon. But let me just give a brief summary. The old kingdom of Babylon began in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. It's the story of Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah. And you may or may not remember, but this is the place in Babylon where they're going to build the Tower of Babel. This is the place where a curse is going to take place where God is going to smite humanity. There's going to be a differentiation of language and humanity is going to be able to spread throughout the earth. Nimrod was the great grandson of Noah. Fast forward to 1,000 years before Nebuchadnezzar. A king emerged, and his name was Hammurabi. Hammurabi is famous as a lawgiver. 1,000 years before Nebuchadnezzar, Hammurabi gave laws concerning conduct, concerning worship, concerning relationship. He gave an expansive amount of laws of how people would govern one another. And so fast forward another thousand years to the time of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And so as you go through this 1,000 year period, the area is going to experience a series of conflicts. Babylon is going to become a city of wealth and influence and luxury. But it isn't just simply going to be a, a place of wealth, luxury, and influence. It's also going to be the religious capital of the world. And by religious capital of the world, I don't mean the religion of God by, that's been given by Abraham. I'm talking about the religion that stands in rebellion against God. And so from that point, Babylon is going to become a type and a picture of the world. It's going to become a type and a picture of a religious system that stands in opposition to God. And so of all of the cities mentioned in the Bible, the number one mentioned city in the Bible is Jerusalem, but the number two city is Babylon. Babylon is mentioned more times than any other city in the world other than the, the city of Jerusalem. And so, the, the, the presence of Babylon is going to linger, and it lingers to this day. Each and every one of you participated in Babylon today. I'll, I'll prove it to you. How many of you at some point today looked at a clock and said, I wonder what time it is, or looked at the time? Raise your hand, go ahead. Some people are either not lying or they just don't like to participate in these surveys, which is fine. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. How many seconds are there in a minute? How many minutes are in an hour? 60. Don't you wonder why there are 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour? It's because of the decimal system that was originated in Babylon. Babylon began the practice of measuring time. And the measurement of time to this very day exists in terms of a Babylonian worldview and a Babylonian mindset. And so Babylon in the time of Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just this place of power, splendor, and glory. It was also the religious center. To put it in another perspective, the Medes and the Persians who were to the north and the Arabians to the south and all of the people along the coast literally saw Babylon as a type of Mecca or Medina or Rome. In other words, Babylon was the place where you made spiritual pilgrimage. Babylon was the place where even the Medes and Persians would go and would adopt, for the most part, the Babylonian pantheon of gods. And so during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, he builds this city from this time forward with Daniel present. And the city would have formed a square. It was nine miles long and nine miles wide. It occupied some 200 square miles. It would have been about the size of New York City today. Around the wall, there were 250 watchtowers placed in strategic locations. Within the wall, there was 100 gates of brass. Inside the city of Nebuchadnezzar built this fabulous hanging garden which became one of the seven wonders of the world. 
Herodotus will come a hundred years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar and he will look at the walls and he will look at the ruins that are already a hundred years old, but then he will begin to speculate concerning its magnificence. The hanging gardens were a square, a perfect terrace, what, what, um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? What archaeologists call a, a ziggurat. So it was a perfect terrace that was cut in dimensions. So it was a 400-foot square terrace that was 350 feet high, and you would take steps up this terrace, and they had this massive watering system that came from the river Euphrates. Viewers could make their way to the top, and it would have been an amazing sight. At the top of this incredible garden was the temple of Marduk, which was joined by the Tower of Babel, and it was the most impressive temple in the Euphrates Valley. And the hanging gardens were built by Nebuchadnezzar in part to comfort his wife, Amitus, who was a princess of Media who longed for the mountains of her native land. So imagine you're a girl and you grow up in Colorado around the majestic Rockies and you miss the mountains and you live on a plain. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, then I'll build you a mountain. And it will be the most spectacular mountain that you will ever see. And it was a combination of Disneyland and the botanical gardens. And Babylon contained a golden image of Bel, which is Marduk. The principal deity of Babylon would also be referred to as Bel or Baal, which in this language in the, the language of both the Babylonians and the, the Persians, at least at this point, is Aramaic. In the Aramaic language, Bel meant the Lord. And so it was a generic term which meant the Lord. And they would use it in reference to Bel. And so there was both a golden image and a golden table, and the gold in all of these different places would have come to some 50,000 pounds of gold. And at the top were golden images of Bel and Ishtar, and then there were two golden lions, and there was a gigantic golden table that was 40 feet long and 15 feet wide, and on the table were human figures of solid gold that were 18 feet high. Babylon was literally the city of gold. It had 53 temples. It had 180 altars to the goddess Ishtar. This was an overwhelmingly religious city. And by religious, I mean those people who would pray and do rituals, and they were complicated rituals. By the way, archaeologists have uncovered some one million fragments of cuneiform information about this place, and they suggest that there's at least that much still left. And so, 
In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14, it says, Take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. Now, Isaiah wrote that generations before the fall of Babylon. Isaiah envisions this beautiful place with its beautiful cities and its beautiful golden altars. It's going to come to a screeching halt. And the context of the Isaiah passage is that Israel will outlast her enemies in Isaiah chapter 14. In other words, Isaiah is pronouncing punishment against Israel's conquerors and oppressors. Israel is going to leave Babylon. Israel is going to eventually return to her land. And then this taunting song is sung against the king and the king's treasures. It's in Isaiah chapter 14 that hell is pictured as welcoming the king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14 verse 9. And it's Isaiah chapter 14 that speaks of Satan and Lucifer in that famous passage that likens the king of Tyre to Lucifer. So why is all of this important? Because Babylon is going to set the religious tone of how human beings will act disconnected from the God of the Bible. Babylon, powerful. Babylon, beautiful. Babylon, religious. Babylon temporal. Nebuchadnezzar will die in 562 BC. He will be replaced by his son-in-law, Nabonidus. Nabonidus is an interesting character. He marries Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Nabonidus is preoccupied not with the god Marduk of Babylon, but the moon god, Sin. And that's the moon god's name, S-I-N. Nabonidus is history's first archaeologist. He sees this wonderful, beautiful place that he lives in, but he becomes a little bit disenchanted with the whole thing, and he heads for Arabia. Nabonidus and the daughter have a son, Belshazzar, who will be talked about in Daniel chapter 5. But to make a long story short, Nabonidus will become history's first archaeologist digging up the past. He will leave the kingdom in the hands of his incompetent and incapable son, Belshazzar. On October 13th, 539 BC, the city of Babylon will be taken by the allied forces of the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar will be slain. The new Babylonian kingdom will be no more. And then the Medes and the Persians will rise to power. In verse 39 it says, but after you, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Daniel in short order gives this whirlwind prophecy. Now remember, when Daniel is giving this prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar, 
The Medes and the Persians are powerful, but they're not that powerful. And clearly, when we come to to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Daniel is already an old man. He understands that the Medes and the Persians will eventually take over. But the third kingdom, the third kingdom of Greece is still very limited. No one would have guessed that the, that the city-states of Greece would emerge. And, and, and at this point, Rome is just a village on the Tiber River. But he's going to give this whirlwind prophecy Another kingdom will arise inferior to to yours. And again, in that simple statement, the Lord reminds Nebuchadnezzar that as powerful, as glorious, as incredible as his kingdom is going to be, it's going to come to a dramatic halt. It is temporary like all men and all of their power and all of their influence. It will one day cease. And so when Daniel says that the next kingdom will be inferior, this has caused some scholars to balk because they they think, in what way was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians inferior to Babylon? As far as length and breadth and power and longevity, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians quickly surpassed and excelled Babylon. So what in the world is he talking about? What in the world does this mean? Daniel, by the Holy Spirit, seems to be saying that this kingdom is inferior in what way? Again, we see the vision of the materials decrease in weight and volume. The head of gold, the chest, if you will, and arms of silver. Now, again, each of the kingdoms had different governments. So what, in fact, is... Daniel's saying concerning this, in Babylon, the king's word was law. In other words, the king was the president, the Congress, and the Supreme Court. The moment the king opened his mouth, it became law. He was an absolute monarch. He was a dictator. And we, again, discover that in in chapter 5, verse 19, where it says, And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. This is Daniel's explanation concerning um, his father, grandfather, in in this instance of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. The Persians had a king. But the Persians worked through satraps. It's also translated presidents. We might think of this as an extended bureaucracy where there were local administrators that the king worked through. So the Persians had a king, but they worked through the princes based on established laws. We know that from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, when we come to the time of Daniel in the lion's den, where, remember, they petitioned the king to create a law so that no one can pray to deities except for, for, for the king himself. And even the king was subject to his own law. So in what sense were they inferior 
in a governmental sense. There was a dispersion of power. So it goes from this centrality of power to a dispersion of power. The Persian youth in that time, they were taught three things. To ride, to shoot the bow, and to tell the truth. This is going to be different from the Greeks. Who believed that truth was a little more malleable. A little more open to discussion. Greece will rule with a king and an army. Rome will begin with a king, will continue as a republic, which will eventually be taken over by a dictatorship. So the Greek empire will come on the scene with the appearance of Alexander the Great in 334 to 330 BC. The Persians will emerge. They will spread almost from Korea to the Mediterranean and subjugate parts of Greece and the Bosphorus. There's a king in Macedon. His name is Philip. He will discover a gigantic treasure trove. He will hire the, most, the smartest human being in the world, Aristotle, to tutor his son Alexander. Alexander will cross the Bosphorus. He will go all the way to India. He will subjugate Egypt and, and Palestine and the whole Tigris-Euphrates Valley continue on to India, subjugate it, come back to Babylon, and at the age of 32, he will get drunk and die of pneumonia. Right before his death, his general said, who should we give the kingdom to? And he said, give it to the strong. And he divvies up the kingdom into four parts. Ptolemy, will take over Egypt. Seleucus will take over the Mesopotamian Valley. Cassander and Lysimachus will go to what's Greece. But the kingdom will then come crashing in when Rome emerges right at the the middle of the first century BC. Pompey will come into Jerusalem draw a line in the sand against Egypt, and then they will begin to occupy the territory. It says that the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And iron that crushes, the kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So the statue has legs of iron, verse 33. And then it has feet partly of clay and partly of iron. It says in verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay, read burnt clay, and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. So we see... These kingdoms, the head, Babylon, a divided kingdom of Medes and Persia with the left and the right arm. We see this this belly of bronze, the internal organs, if you will, of the fortitude of Greece. And by the way, Greece will remain in part the cultural center of Western civilization. There's an old saying, the Jews gave us religion. The Greeks gave us culture, but the Romans gave us law. 
And so as this kingdom is divided, you'll remember in the fourth uh, century, Rome is going to be for the most part divided between east and west. And those legs and those toes will continue into the future. And scholars are deeply divided over whether these verses in part refer exclusively to the Roman Empire of old. Or does it refer to a revived Roman Empire in the future? In verse 42 it says, And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay they will mingle with the seed of men but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay what in the world does that mean what is Daniel trying to say about these successive kingdoms here's what we minimally know that they are successive What else is he trying to say? That they're going to degrade over time. What else is he saying? Three are past. One is both past and present and still future. In what way are the past kingdoms still present? Babylon is still present. In the worldview and religious thinking, so is Persia and so is Greece and so is Rome. If you, like me, speak Spanish or French or Italian or English, your alphabet system is descended from Rome. The alphabetic system and the language system that you use has been borrowed from all of these civilizations. Clearly the last kingdom is Rome, but then we see this Rome breaking into nation states and then fast forwarding to a time of Messiah. Some Bible teachers teach that the iron represents the philosophical principles of justice and law, the baked clay, are human beings, fragile. The combination of these elements, jurisprudence and human beings, make up the present political systems all over the world. What is the strength of human government? Law. What is the weakness of human government? people. No, you laugh. And the moment that you even laugh, you're going, he's right. He's right. Because imagine if you have a human being who says, I'm not subject to the law. I can do whatever I want. That by very definition becomes a lawless person. A person who's a law unto themselves. Now, we're given a lot of clues 
in Daniel chapter 7, but the elements of iron and baked clay resist being brought together because they are radically dissimilar from each other. And so this has caused people to ask and answer the question, what are these feet and toes? What will this final human government finally look like? Will this finally final government be a reconstitution of the Roman Empire in 10 nation states? Will this reconstitution be 10 global zones that literally blanket the earth? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that there is a future government that will unfold, that will be taken captive by an antichrist. And the biggest and the most perfect picture of what this Antichrist is going to look like and sound like and be like is contained in the book of Daniel. And so Daniel is going to give us bits and pieces of what this final world power, this final confederation of nations will be like. My own belief is they appear to arise simultaneously during the time of the tribulation. Prophecy scholars point out that the ten toes of chapter 2 and the ten kings of chapter 7 bear no resemblance to anything that has ever happened in human history. So what does that mean? It means that it, it's left that it will happen, it will unfold. So what does that tell us? That whatever else happens in human history, no matter what wars are fought or what circumstances will begin to unfold, what the Bible says about the future is certain. John Walver describes it this way, quote, According to Daniel's prophecy, the kingdoms represented by the ten toes existed side by side and were destroyed by one sudden catastrophic blow. Nothing like this has occurred in history, unquote. So prophecy scholars like Ron Rhodes believes the event will occur in history future as a final revived Roman Empire is shattered at the second coming of Jesus in glory. That, according to Ron Rhodes, how However it occurs and however it unfolds, it doesn't seem to happen gradually over a long period of time, but rather it is a supernatural intervention all at once. So we see the meaning of the statue, but also the meaning of the stone. Let's just quickly look at it. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. This in contrast to the ones that will be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It's not governed by human beings. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. In contrast to the human rule, it will be God's rule. 
In contrast to the temporality of human beings, this will be an eternal rule. It will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. In verse 44, we find that remarkable statement. And in the days of these kings, question. And in the days of these kings, is this a reference to Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome? I'm going to suggest to you that at least in a small way, it must be. Because the unfolding story of humanity's reconciliation to God is going to include the return of the Jewish people back to Jerusalem, which is going to take place through Cyrus. It's going to be the, the subjugation of the area in peace by Alexander, who's going to allow a temporary rule of Jewish people in Jerusalem. It's going to be the horrific subjugation of Antiochus Epiphanes as he slaughters a pig in a temple, which is going to define what it means to be a Jew. And it's going to also include the Roman Empire and the coming of the Messiah. But most certainly, it seems to focus in verse 44. And in those days, these kings, the kings that are most certainly being spoken about, are the ten kings that exist in a global governance, I think that at some point there's going to be a United States of the world that will be partitioned in 10 geographical regions. And it says, in the days of these kings, I'm thinking almost certainly that it probably means the days of the final feet, if you will. The final kingdom. That God will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It will stand forever. So the idea is that the God of heaven sets up a kingdom. The kingdom is overthrown. And all earthly kingdoms are subjugated. Nebuchadnezzar witnesses the stone of this mountain. And the mountain becomes a type and a picture in the Bible, when you see the word mountain, it almost certainly refers to kingdoms. And so this means that the stone doesn't owe its origin or destiny to human beings. The stone is divine. The rock crushes the kingdoms of men. Whatever power or authority or abilities that human beings possess, they will be completely overwhelmed and destroyed by the stone. And so the biggest question that you should ask yourself is this. What is that stone? Who is that stone? And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure it out. The stone is repeatedly used to describe God's Messiah, 
the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 118, 22, Isaiah 8, 14, Isaiah 28, 16, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Peter writes, Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a cheap cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed, unquote. There's a stone Described invariably as the chief stone, the cornerstone, the sure foundation, the stone that came from heaven. It's the rock that Peter talks about. When Jesus asks the question, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus' flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Peter, but my father who is in heaven. And again, we're immediately drawn to the temporary nature of human governance and the permanent nature of God's kingdom. God was at work in the past and he continues to work in the present and there is a final kingdom which Jesus talked about when his disciples asked him, teach us to pray. And you know the prayer. You probably said it not a hundred times, but thousands of times if you grew up in a religious tradition like me where you did a lot of bad things and the priest said, you need to say a hundred Hail Marys and 300 Our Fathers. I know you're laughing because you're going, I never got that many. But if you've ever prayed the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. God's plan, God's will, God's revelation, God's unfolding is certain. That's what Daniel says. He reminds the king, the interpretation is certain. Remember what interpretation means. The untying, the unraveling, the unfolding of the future is certain. It must happen. The source of the interpretation, that is the untying of the dream, is God himself. This is the God who is in heaven. This is the God who reveals secrets in verse 19, in verse 23, in verse 28, in verse 30. So what do we know? The four kingdoms are Gentile powers. In the days of the final Gentile power, the God of heaven will shatter earthly kingdoms through his rock the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll set up an eternal kingdom. And so the governments of men are appointed by God, but they will expire. The government of God 
is appointed by God and will never expire. Let's see if we can connect the dots. Ready? Daniel's separation from sin in the first chapter leads to the revelation of God in the second chapter and the eventual elevation of Daniel at the end of the chapter. We're going to have communion now. So what I'd like you to do is just take a moment and pray with me. Carolyn is going to come up. She's going to sing some songs. And then what I would like you to do, you know what, let's just, let's just do it right now. Let's, even as, as, as she's coming forward and she begins to sing, you know, just play softly or whatever, I'm just going to pray for you and pray for our communion service. And then let's, let's do this all together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the revelation that you gave to Daniel with such specificity and undeniability. Lord, we know that there are critics and skeptics who say, well, this Daniel must have been written sometime after all of this stuff occurred, but nothing could be further from the truth because how do you explain Ezekiel commending Daniel if it was written in the in the foreseeable past. Lord, we know that there are people who deny the supernatural ability of God to peer into the future and then unfold to his servants the things that must be. And Lord, we know there there are people who deny that there's a God in heaven who looks into human hearts and knows the circumstances of 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 those hearts. We know that there are people who deny that there's a God in heaven Lord, we know that there are people who say all of this historical stuff is very interesting except for the religious sociopaths who keep tying it to some sort of God who's there. But Lord, we know that there is a God who is there and that the people who hate you and who are running from you and who deny you won't be able to run forever. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that this that Jesus came to the earth, that he died on the cross for our sins. And so, Lord, we, as, even as we meditate and contemplate what Jesus has done in his sacrifice, Lord, we hearken back to the few days before his own death when Jesus said, take this. He broke bread. He said, take this and eat it, all of you. He prayed a prayer. Jesus said, thank you, God, for the grain of the earth, which is crushed so that we could participate and partake. Just like Jesus was sent and crushed so that we could all participate in his death. Lord, we remember the words that Jesus said. He took a cup. He gave thanks and praise. He gave the cup to his disciples and he said, take this and drink it, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, which is the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. 
that, Lord, when we take this cup and we drink this bread, we are identifying ourselves not simply as citizens of the earth and not just citizens of the kingdoms of the earth, but that we're citizens of heaven and that Jesus is our king and that Jesus is our Lord. And like Paul, that our citizenship is in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we take this bread and drink this cup, that, Lord, it's an affirmation that we see ourselves and identify ourselves as lovers of Jesus and followers of Jesus and citizens of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead.